Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Well, my name is Dave Shive, and I am one of the pastors here at TBA. And it is truly an honor to be with you here this morning. Now, this week I was looking on the internet, and somebody was taking a poll on the internet, and I found it very interesting. The poll they were taking, they asked people, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? And I was amazed by all the different answers that people were given. So before we get into this this morning, what I would like you to do is take the next two minutes, turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself if you don't know each other, and tell them what is one thing that you would change about yourself. You have two minutes. Go. Okay, so what would you change? Anybody want to share what would you change? What? Your consistency with God. Anybody else? What? Younger and smarter. Oh, don't we all wish? Anybody else? What would you change? Hair on his head. Interestingly enough that you mentioned that, because, you know, as I read all those answers, I naturally thought, what would I want to change about myself? And being a hair follically challenged person, and that is the politically correct term, hair follically challenged. But listen, those of us that suffer from HFC, we, we do not take kindly to the hurtful slurs that you guys use like baldy, chrome dome, and cue ball, and bulb head, and melon head, egg head, Mr. Clean. That, that's, we don't like that. HFC is the correct term, although we will also accept hair disadvantaged, comb free, or hair impaired. Those are all okay too, so you can use those. Anyways, being an HFC person, I began to wonder what it would look like if I could have hair. What would that be like? And I came across this amazing website that lets you choose celebrity hairstyles. And then you get to see what it looks like on you. So what you do is you upload a, a, a picture of yourself, and then you, and you go through all these celebrities that they have, and you go, I wonder what George Clooney's hair would look like on my head. So... You do that. It is good. That's what I thought, too. I thought it was actually, actually not bad at all. <clears throat> but then I was like, well, you know, George Clinton, what if somebody a little bit hotter like Brad Pitt? See, I could have his hair. <clears throat> but then I thought, you know, I really want a younger look, so I went with Justin Bieber. <laughs> That's not so good. But then I thought, if I'm going to have hair, I really want hair, so I took Lady Gaga. <clears throat> and took her hair. So that's pretty cool. Now it could be worse. I could look like this guy. Does anybody know who that guy is? That's Brian Legg. No joke, that's Brian Legg. Isn't that funny? Oh, it cracks me up every time I see it. It's hilarious. Well, listen, in all seriousness, I would not change my hair. I wouldn't change anything about my hair. I'm glad I don't have hair. Uh, you know, if, if you could tell, if you could say, take a pill and your hair grow back, I wouldn't do it. I like that I don't have hair. It's easier for me. Actually, I wish the hair that I have would just go ahead and fall out so I don't have to shave it every day. But I wouldn't mind looking like that. I think that would be sweet. My wife's going, oh. <laughs> I, think, I think all of us would like to change certain things about ourselves. I mean, we want to be taller, we want to be skinnier, more athletic, smarter, better at this or better at that, but why? 
Why do we immediately know what we want to change in ourselves? Why do we know that this is the thing I want to change? I think it's a couple of things. One, I think we compare ourselves to others. I think we look at other people and we go, well, we don't measure up to them. And that's a whole different topic that we're going to tackle another day. The other reason I think that we do it is because I think we're using the wrong standard to measure things by. See, we measure ourselves by the standard that the world creates instead of following the pattern that God has set up for us. See, the world tells us that we should look and act a certain way. But see, God's view of those things is vastly different. And at times it's opposite and backwards from what the world says. See, we're in our series Christmas in July. And Christmas in July in of itself seems a little bit backwards. You usually don't think of Christmas in the middle of the hot summer. But it's an annual tradition for us where we try to give back to those around us and the community around us. So we take the spirit of Christmas and we bring it in July and we give back to the community and give back to those that are in need around us. And so because we're doing Christmas in July and it's our annual tradition, we thought that it would be cool for us to talk about some of the upside-down ways of God. See, last week Brian Legg shared with you guys the concept of first being last. That Christ came to this earth not to, not to be served, but to serve others around him. And he really set up the example of how we're supposed to live our life. But that oftentimes we get into this trap, we get caught in this trap of striving for the wrong things and doing it for all the wrong reasons. And that really true joy only comes when we're in a position of surrender. When we're surrendering our lives to Christ, when we're being humble enough to be last and allowing others to be first. And being a servant to those people around us. And that's definitely upside down from what the world would tell you it should be. And so today we're going to talk about another upside down concept. And that is that your weaknesses, the things that you're weak in, are truly your strengths in Christ. Now I know I joked about wanting to look like that, that really buff guy. But there's some truth to that. Because see, as a kid, I always wanted to be that strong guy, that strong man. All my childhood heroes are people who have extraordinary strength. Superman, Captain America, um, pro football players. I mean, even my favorite character in the Bible is Samson. Not because of what Samson did, because actually Samson wasn't really that great of a guy. But as a kid, I was drawn to Samson because he had this super strength. And that's still true for me today. I mean, I love to watch the world's strongest man competition on ESPN. Anybody else watch that show? I think that is the coolest show. There is something awe-inspiring about a guy who can take a 500-pound rock and lift it up over his head. And see, I think we're all drawn to strength. I mean, think about how we celebrate strength in our culture. How do we define success in our culture? It's the team that wins, right? It's the people that come out on top. See, we see those people around us who have abilities and skills that we don't have and we make the assumption that they're better suited for leadership that they're better suited for success we make the assumption that because they're stronger or they have more education or they're more physically attractive or they have more money or they dress nicer they have more charisma or whatever it is whatever skills that they have that are better than ours we make the assumption that they are going to be more successful and often that's the world's picture of success, that only the strong survive, that the weak are useless, that the big guy always wins. 
Now, before we get deeper into this, let me say this. There is absolutely, positively nothing wrong with striving to be the best. There's nothing wrong with it at all. There's nothing wrong with being talented in certain areas. See, God has given all of us gifts. And and he's given more gifts to some of us than others. And I personally believe those who he's given more gifts to, those people are more responsible to use those gifts. But the problem arises is when we forget where those gifts come from. And when we start to think that it's our own strength, our own skills, or our own abilities that produce results. See, when we begin begin to think that our strength is the only way, then God gets left out of the picture. And that's never a good thing. And the world would love to leave God out of the picture. See, the world wants you to only see on the outside. The outward appearance is what counts to the world. But God's way is a little upside down from the world. But see, because see, God is more concerned with what's on the inside. God is more concerned with a person's heart than he is concerned with how they look or how strong they are or what skills and abilities they have. And see, often God is in this habit of doing amazing things to those who the world would say are weak and useless. Because with God, it, it, isn't, it isn't often that the big guy wins out. With God, the big guy usually doesn't come out on top. It's usually the little guy who pulls off the miraculous win. And all throughout the Bible, you see God working through the most unassuming people to do the most amazing things. I mean, you have Moses, and Moses told God that he wasn't a good speaker, that his speech wasn't that good, but yet God puts him in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on the nation at the time. And God uses Moses to lead his people out of bondage. You have Rahab, who was a prostitute, but because of her faith, her amazing faith and obedience, she is in the genealogy of Christ. And then you've got David, who was this little shepherd boy who faces Goliath, this mammoth of a man, and all he has is a sling and a stone. See, again and again in Scripture, God uses what we think are weak and unimportant people to do amazing things. See, might and money, power and position, they mean nothing to God. Because the little guy wins every time with God. Why? Why does the little guy win? It's because God is with him. Those guys served God. And God is bigger than everybody else. One particular story I want to share with you this morning is a story about Gideon. And Gideon, the story of Gideon is in Judges chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible or you've got an app on your iPhone, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. And I want to read a little bit of the story to you. So it says in verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare, 
So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to their Lord for help. So God hears the cries of the Israelites after seven years. And he's going to deliver them. But he's going to deliver them in a way that shows that he alone is their strength. It isn't their own abilities or their own talents that save them. It's only God. So God chooses this guy named Gideon to lead his army against the Midianites. Jump to verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him, to to Gideon, and he said, Go with strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon said, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. See, from the world's point of view, even from Gideon's point of view, you wonder why does God select him to deliver Israel? See, the world would say it takes this great military leader, a strategist, or a great warrior to win this battle. But see, God doesn't work that way. He often chooses the weak things of the world to accomplish great things for his glory. But God doesn't just choose Gideon because his clan is the weakest or that he's the weakest in his family. Again, you have to understand that God isn't looking on the surface of things. He's looking at the heart of things. See, God didn't use Moses and David and Rahab. He didn't use all those people because they were small and weak. He used each of them because they loved God and they were obedient to him. And he chooses Gideon for the exact same reason. See, the Lord, the Lord instructs Gideon to tear down the altars and the worship sites that his father has put up to all of these false gods. And Gideon is fearful to do it because of what his father might do to him or what the townspeople will do to him. But Gideon does it anyways. Even though he's fearful, he still obeys God and does what God asks of him. And then soon after that, the Midianites and their allies, they start to make their annual invasion. And they bring more than 135,000 men with them. Well, meanwhile, Gideon, he begins to call out to all the other tribes of Israel. And he sends a call out for men to come and fight. And so Gideon amasses an army of 32,000 men. So you have 32,000 Israelites against 135,000 Midianites. What chance does 32,000 have against 135,000. See, the Jews, they were outnumbered and they would certainly be defeated except for one thing. God was on their side and he promised them victory. But still, still with 32,000 men, they might be able to claim victory. They might be able to say, you know what? The odds were tight. It was tough. It was a challenge, but we still overcame it. It could have been a win, but not a miraculous win. And God likes to work in the miraculous. Jump over to chapter 7. So Gideon and his army got up early, and they went as far as the spring of Herod. And the armies of of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Now, when I went to Israel, I actually got to go to the spring of Herod. And it's really cool, and I'll show you pictures. That's the entrance to the spring. There's the spring itself. It's not really big. I mean, you have these pictures of your head in the Bible about this gigantic spring, but it's not. It's this little bitty spring. Um, And that's where Gideon's army was camped. And then 
the, the hill of Mora, if, you turn, if you're facing the spring and you turn all the way around, that's the picture that you see. So you can see across that valley, that hill that's in the distance, that's the hill the Bible's talking about. So the Midianites are camped at, the, at, at that hill right there, and Gideon and his, and his army is at the spring right there. I just thought that was cool. I want to share that with you. So anyways, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. And when Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. And only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and they drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns and other, from the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. So God reduces their number from 32,000 down to 300. Again, not the way the world would approach things. I mean, can you imagine being one of the 300 people? If I was one of the 300, I'd be going, um, are we sure this is a good idea? To let everybody go home and just us stay? But see, God was with them. And God was going to deliver them. And he was going to prove that it was him and him alone that saves them. Look at verse 16. He divides the 300 men into three groups. And he gives each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. And this is Gideon talking. And Gideon says to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. And suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. Then they held the blazing torches in their left hand and the horns in their right hand, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. And those who were not killed fled. So even though, even though the 300 Israelites were outnumbered, and even though Gideon isn't this great military leader or warrior, they win the battle decisively without losing a single person. They didn't even have to swing a sword. See, all throughout the Bible you see example after example of God using ordinary men and women who are obedient to him, doing extraordinary things. 
So why does God work this way? Why does God do it this way? Well, I think it's for a number of reasons. One of them is, I think it's because we have to be in the right position. We have to, we have to be in the right position before God, before God can use us. And that position is us recognizing our weakness and our brokenness and our complete dependence upon God. And then allowing God to take the lead in our lives. Paul talks about it in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, if I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in all the insults and hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul, who was arguably probably the greatest apostle of all time, needed to know and hold on to his right position with God. And that is that God is the one who makes all things possible. Christ working through his weakness. See, God works through our troubles. He works through our weaknesses. He works through our faults so that he may receive the glory And the world doesn't understand those things. See, the world just can't understand things like the last is first. Weak is strong. You have to give in order to receive. You have to die in order to find life. See, these things are backwards to the world. The world doesn't understand them. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are truly wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, the truth is, all of us are broken. All of us are. Even those people that you see, that you think have it all together, those people that you look at and you go, man, I wish my life was like their life. I wish I was more like they were. They're all broken. And they all have faults. And they all have weaknesses. We all do. All of us do. Even us as pastors, we all struggle through life just like you do. We are subject to and at times fall to temptation just like you do. We have problems in our marriages, issues with our finances, struggles with our kids. We get depressed. We get discouraged. And we question 
God and wonder where he is at times. See, we're all broken. All of us are. I'm broken. And I believe, I believe that God uses that brokenness. I believe he uses those things in my life to keep me dependent upon him. Because it's only in my weakness, it's only in my struggles that I cry out for God to hold me up. And those times when God's holding me up, when I'm completely dependent upon him for everything, when I've given him complete control of my life, when I'm obedient no matter how fearful or impossible it looks, it's in those moments that I am unbeatable. Unbeatable. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And there's no place I'd rather be. There's no place I'd rather be See, often at times I think we work so hard to avoid the pain that that life throws at us. We strive so hard to find this unobtainable happiness that's just fleeting and only lasts for a short time. I mean, we cry out and beg, God, please take all the pain away. Take it away. And don't get me wrong, I do the same things. I cry out the same things. Because I don't enjoy pain. I don't. No one does, because pain hurts. But Paul says, Paul says he took pleasure in hardships. He took pleasure in persecution. He took pleasure in troubles that he suffers for Christ. And see, the key phrase here is for Christ. See, Paul isn't talking about suffering for the things that we've caused because of the sin in our life, there's a difference, and you need to know this. You need to know the difference. You need to know that if you have continual sin in your life, you know something is wrong, but you keep doing it, and you continue to allow it to happen, you're going to continue to suffer. See, that's the consequences of sin in our lives. And it's God's way of telling you, walk away from it, stop doing it, come back to me because God has life and sin leads to death and it will be our destruction if we allow it to stay in our lives but what Paul is talking about Paul is talking about finding joy in suffering for Christ for doing the right things in life when the world is against you and it hurts and I think the key is Paul understood what true joy is. See, joy is something that we have all the time if we're walking with God. Happiness is not joy. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. It comes and goes. Joy is constant. It's with us all the time when we walk with God. See, joy is present even in the hardest of times because we know that we have hope in Jesus Christ. And so the suffering that we endure is put into perspective for us. And we begin to see how God uses it in our lives to change us, to shape us, and to mold us into the image of His Son. And God uses the pain and suffering in our life to give Him glory so that others around us can see God working in our lives and experience the same joy and hope that we have in Christ. See, one thing I do know, this is one thing I do know, No matter what I'm going through, 
If I try to do it in my own strength, I will fail. I will fail. And I do it all the time. I try to do things in my own strength all the time. And over and over again, I fail. It's only when I give control to God that I can be successful. It's only when I admit my weakness and my brokenness to God and allow His plan to control my life that I find that I have strength to continue on. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. If you guys will start coming up, making your way up, band. I don't know where you're at in life right now. I, I don't. I don't know if you're stressed out, if you're agitated or troubled, if you're uncertain about your future. Perhaps you felt like your world has been turned upside down. Maybe that's how you feel right now. And it seems as if God is not present, that he isn't aware of your problems, that he isn't paying attention to you, that he isn't seeing you or hearing you. I want you to know this. I want you to know that life is full of troubles, beginning with the day that we're born. We have health troubles, family troubles, troubles with our parents, troubles with our kids, marriage troubles, financial troubles. My question for you, though, is this. Whose strength are you leaning on? Are you depending upon God, or are you doing it in your own strength? Let go. Let go of whatever you're holding on to and give it to God. Let Him work through your struggles. Let Him work through your weaknesses. I don't know where we get this picture that we have to have it all figured out or that we've got to be all fixed before we approach God. Because it isn't that way at all. See, God already knows where we are. He already knows what we struggle with. He already knows our faults, our sin. He already knows where we fail. And yet He loves us anyways, just like we are. And He's ready and willing to hold us up and to fight on our side but we have to allow him in. We have to humble ourselves and we have to drop this idea that we can do any of this, any of life by ourselves. We have to allow God complete control and leadership in every area of our lives. Only then can we become conquerors. Only then will we experience true joy in life. Only then will we be truly strong? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your amazing love and grace. God, thank you that you are strong enough to fight our battles for us, God. God, thank you that you do bring victory. God, help us, help us to humble ourselves to allow you to fight for us, to be on our side, God. In our weakness, God, in, our, in the things that we struggle with, Lord, God, I pray that you're glorified through those things. God, we need you desperately. We are so dependent upon you. God, open our hearts so that we can allow you in to have that control. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.